Welcome back to The Fellowship Hall, a podcast on racial equity and radical friendship. Today, I am so excited to have on my friend, Dr. J. Augustine. Dr. Augustine is, for I'm just going to say it, perhaps our most accomplished guest to date. Um, I'm so excited for y'all to meet him. I'm not even going to try to introduce him because I would just go on and we'd waste a whole podcast and I want y'all to hear from him. Dr. Augustine, could you introduce yourself to our listeners? You are very kind. <laughs> you are very kind, and you have put me on the spot now, haven't you? Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be with you. It is a pleasure to be at the at the Fellowship Hall. It's a pleasure to be with you in this space. Um, I am. Um, I serve as the senior pastor of St. Joseph AME Church in Durham, uh, a, a job and a calling I absolutely love. I also work with the Duke Center for Reconciliation, uh, a ministry that is really, really important to me, a ministry uh, that's an outgrowth of Duke Divinity School. I'm a proud graduate of Duke Divinity School where I earned my doctorate. Uh, and I also am a law professor. I'm a visiting professor of law now at uh, North Carolina Central University. Uh, I also am a proud graduate of Tulane University Law School and, uh, and taught for uh, probably 15 years as an adjunct um, uh, at Southern University Law Center down in Louisiana, where I was a member of the bar there, where I was pastoring there. Uh, prior to being transferred here to Durham in 2019. So um, I'm, a, I'm a busy guy. I, I, I love keeping my nose down into the grind, uh, but I try to be productive in all I do. And it's a pleasure to spend time with you today. Thank you so much for being here. And like I said, I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, so you have a really interesting background. You were a civil rights attorney. Um, you're still a law professor, right? You're still active in this world. Could you tell us about how you see this intersection of civil rights and ministry and how you walk the line between like public and private and nonprofit 501c3 and this like public witness that the church needs to carry in our time? Absolutely. So it is it is very, very much, if I can use the term tailor made for me, the role of uh, a prophetic leadership uh, speaks to the church's ecclesial role. Uh, uh, the minister's ecclesial role or the evaluation as a prophet, as a priest or a king, uh, the threefold office it's called. Um, uh, you think about the priest as someone who exercises conciliatory leadership, someone who represents the goodwill of the institution. The priest is the one who officiates the funeral. The priest is the one who visits uh, those in the hospital. Uh, uh, I'm, I certainly serve as a pastor and I'm very much the priest. Uh, the king, or to put it in non-gender terms, the royal, royal leadership, is the one who organizes and who brings people together, who sets objectives, and who, who exercises political persuasion, asks people to move in a certain direction, and hopefully move in very much a context of self-actualization, moving from where they are to hopefully the place God would have them to be. But the prophet, the prophet is the role uh, uh, that, I, that I believe I was made for. Uh, and that is in the, in the prophetic leadership domain, the individual who is not afraid to speak truth to institutions of power. Um, and I have um, I have a career history in doing that uh, from the pulpit, having served uh, historic St. James AME Church in downtown New Orleans, an institution founded in 1844, the oldest predominantly black church, Protestant church, at least in that city, the mother church uh, of my denomination in the Deep South. Um, uh, God blessed my ministry tremendously there. Uh, and after being transferred here to Durham in 2019, God blessed my ministry amazingly. Uh, before the pandemic, before the March 2020 uh, shutdown, 
uh, but God continued to bless during the course of the pandemic because it was so important given the, the former occupant of the White House, it was so, so very important to speak truth to power. Um, I will say briefly, you referenced my career in law. Um, I'm, I'm very proud. I'm still a, a card-carrying member of the Louisiana Bar. The card's on inactive status now, but I'm still a card-carrying member of the bar. Um, I'm very proud of the work I did in civil rights litigation. Um, a very proud graduate of Tulane University Law School. I began my career as a law clerk at the Louisiana Supreme Court, uh, clerking for uh, the first and only African-American woman to serve as Chief Justice of that court, uh, Burnett Joshua Johnson, who now is retired. A real, a real shero to so many, including me. Um, uh, she was molded in the civil rights tradition uh, of those who came before her and mentored her, and she mentored me in much the same regard. So I'm very, very proud uh, of the history, the torch that I carry uh, as a lawyer and as someone with the acumen to to cross, uh, um, uh, to to bring disciplines together, to to be able to to preach it from the pulpit, to be able to organize it as a minister but also to be able to go to the courthouse and file pleadings uh, if something is unjust and the institution will not respond to reason. So I'm very proud of that past and I'm just trying to do good with the with whatever God has given me. I'm trying to do good on a daily basis. So we talk a lot about procedure, right? And procedural systems thinking. You're someone who's walked the line of both navigating through social systems, but also active in church leadership. How does the church help people think through issues like race or housing justice more systematically and concretely in a way that they can be active in the world? So there is a longstanding, I'll use the term division, for lack of a better term, right, on, on politics, quote unquote, politics in the church. And people who say, you know, I just, I just want you to preach. I don't want you to be political. And I'm, I, I say to myself, what Bible are you reading? Because Jesus was very much into politics. And when I use the term politics, I don't mean Jesus was into partisanship. He wasn't running for office as a Republican or as a Democrat. Jesus was very much into the political systems of his day uh, because he was a ethnic minority as a Jew living in the Roman Empire. He was subjected to uh, a caste system uh, 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 that discriminated against him and his family and the broader community in which he lived. And he responded appropriately as a prophet, priest, and king. Uh, but we, we, we oftentimes, in talking to reference Pauli Murray, to reference speaking truth to power, uh, we often talk about Jesus as speaking truth to institutions of power, uh, as he did with the institutional power and the hierarchy uh, that was set up in the, uh, uh, in the Roman government, or the empirical government, imperial government there. So uh, the church, really, I, I believe Jesus came in a, in a twofold regard. He came primarily for this twofold regard, to usher in salvation and to institutionalize social justice. So as I think about that, the best imagery uh, uh, is, is a quote from Dr. King. He, he oftentimes said, the cross has two planes, the vertical and the horizontal. The vertical plane of the cross, and I'm talking about the cross of Jesus here, the vertical plane, the up-down axis, speaks to our salvific relationship with God. So Jesus came, Jesus died, so we could have the gift of everlasting life, right? We are saved because of Jesus. But in addition to the fact Jesus died, Jesus also lived. And Jesus lived a ministry uh, uh, of, of doing for the least of these, to put it in Matthew 25 terms. He lived a ministry of 
he began a public ministry, if you remember the quote from Luke 4, um, uh, I've come to give sight to the blind, I've come to set the captives free, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, um, uh, but he came to, to, to effectuate social justice. So the horizontal plan of the cross is because Jesus also lived, and we should live in an egalitarian context as equal to one another, that means gender ethnicity, that means racial ethnicity, that means ethnic ethnicity, uh, 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 it means we're equal. If equal means equal, equal means equal. And so that really is the is the political dimension, if you will, of Jesus's ministry. So to answer your question directly, the church, in my estimation, should be an exemplar for society at large because of the principles we supposedly hold to be so sacrosanct, those things that are truly wedded in our in our creeds. If you go back and look at the doctrine of what was behind these creeds that we voted on at church conferences in terms of the polity in our respective denominations, but it's supposed to be more than that, a part of the fiber of who we are as being, to treat one another as equals, uh, 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 to be in community and harmony with, with, with fellow human beings. And the Bible is replete with example after example after example where you have unjust systems and here comes justice. Unjust systems, here comes the narrative of social justice to combat those unjust systems. In the New Testament's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that tell the story of Jesus's life from birth to, uh, uh, to crucifixion, uh, uh, all speak to systems of social justice led by Jesus in response to the Roman Empire. Right, so you know, one of, one of my great disappointments in some ways is that you know, in our church context, language becomes such a hold up for so many people or such a hang up for so many people. And it's, they can't get past a certain word, right? Or they can't get past a certain idea. And, you know, it seems to me that the world, the gospel is calling us to get past this language, to, to help serve others, to help feed the hungry and clothe those without a code. And how do you, as a pastor and as a leader, help people get past that linguistic hang-up? So people are people, right? And, and, and if I was not clear, I want to tie the, the last response into where I'm going here now. The division that has existed in the church for so long is between, as Raphael Warnock describes in his book, The Divided Mind of the Black Church, but it, it, it applies across the board to the church universal. There's a division between piety and politics people who want to deal with the with the vertical axis or the vertical plane of the cross, but they don't want to deal with the horizontal plane. They, want, they don't want to recognize equality among people and recognize that because of human systems, some people have been pushed to the margins and it's our duty, it's our responsibility as believers to help help them to, to, to that what you've done to the least of these, you have also done to me as Matthew 25 says. Um, as I think about our role as, as, as believers, um, we are here to effectuate change in a world where, where others may not always think like us. If you think back about a wonderful read, uh, 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 one of my mentors from Duke, uh, uh, Will Willimon, and, um, and I did not have Stanley Harawas, but, uh, but he's, spoken, he's spoken in classes that I've been in, but Resident Aliens, a book they wrote probably 1989, classic work, which really speaks to the division of us and them but it's our responsibility not to give up on them, right? So the us meaning we're the church, we're here going to Philippians 4, we're the church, we're the body of believers, and we're on this colony here in, in, in the world, or here in, in our case, in the United States of America. America has been fraught with so many political divisions, and, and because of some very wise and astute politics, 
There is a very large segment of the church. We normally identify them as evangelical Christians. There's a very large segment of the church that has been co-opted, I believe, uh, in certain partisan politics, right? Um, um, and, 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 and I believe these are wonderful people. These are well-intended people, but I believe there have been some very slick master manipulators that have set agendas and that have played into their good nature and their goodwill. If there's any good thing, I think, that has happened uh, because of uh, the period in our country's history of 2016 to 2020, and I'm deliberately not using a particular person's name, but if there's any good thing that happens because of all of the ethnic divisions, between, because of all the identity politics, all of the things we saw that were equated with the Make America Great Again narrative, um, I think now the bottom has fallen out, and I think people have seen injustice uh, uh, marauding as as uh, um, as Christ, right? We've seen the wolf in sheep's clothing, so to speak. So because of that, I'm very optimistic that uh, those who have been to the far right in evangelicalism um, uh, will find commonality. I hope we will all find commonality with more progressive Christians, and we can come together and we can get past our ethnic boundaries. We can get past our denominational boundaries. We can get past gender boundaries. And we can recognize that all does mean all, and we all are God's children, and we all should treat one another equally. Absolutely. That, that deserves an amen if I've ever heard one. Um, <laughs> one of my let, me, let me say this very, very briefly. I want to say this, too. From a scriptural perspective, as I, as I think about diversity and the importance of diversity, and I think about bringing people together, um, uh, if you read the Acts 10 narrative, right, where Peter is on the rooftop, and, uh, and Peter is a devout Jew, uh, uh, and there are certain dietary restrictions. When you go back and you read the Levitical codes and you look at the Old Testament, there are certain dietary restrictions we know are placed on, on, on those who are Jewish practitioners. Peter falls asleep and has a daydream, and, uh, and, and, and the Lord speaks to him and says, go catch and eat, and it's, and it's pork. Are you, are you kidding me? You want me to eat that? I'm, I'm, I'm Peter. I'm a good Jew. I'm an observant Jew. There's no way I'm going to eat that stuff that, that's profane and unclean. And God asked rhetorically, how can you call unclean that which I have made clean? Peter has what I like to call a come to Jesus session. And the 34th verse of chapter 10, I'm going to quote the King James Version. I now realize that God is no respecter of persons, meaning God does not draw these distinctions as we do as human beings. We are all God's children. So as you tie that to the discipline of the law, if all means all, then we hold these truths to be self-evident that all people are created equal, then we all are God's children and we all should treat one another accordingly and stop drawing lines of division and find places of commonality and community, like the fellowship hall, <laughs> five places where we can all come together at a table of, of, uh, of sibling love uh, uh, and embrace one another and find commonality to make our society better. Right. And, and I like one of my mentors, uh, Dr. Luke Bratherton, who's a good friend of Stanley's and, and Will Willimons, I'm sure, um, who's at Duke. He says, um, you know, we need to find a way as a church to escape these ascension and declension narratives, these narratives that say something really good happened once and, and it's here and we got to protect it, even if it's a, the cost of blah, 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 or everything's going to hell in a handbasket and we need to right now have radical, urgent, political, you know, you've got to side with me because these people are trying to destroy it. And either way leads to the scapegoating problem. And it's, it's an escape from democracy. It's an escape from working together as a body 
from listening to each other, from the procedural movements that, that really do matter in some sense in, in this act of doing democracy that's essential to the cooperation and, and escape from conflict. And so I'm, you can tell we're both preachers. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't agree with you more. So preach. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I do, I want to, I want to jump on to, this is a little all for what we normally do on podcasts, but you're a voting rights expert. And I think that, you know, we need to talk more in the church about voting rights. Now I'm not saying partisanship. I'm not saying we need to talk about who to vote for, though I think there's room for those conversations too at times. But I think, you know, just in terms of voting rights, voting is so important to our democratic electoral system, right? It is the, it is the foundation, as some have said, to a stable, active, healthy, robust democracy. What do voting rights look like today? How are voting rights and how can the church encourage people to get out to vote, to share their voice without being partisan pundits or puppets? So the church, I think, has a moral responsibility to encourage civic participation. Uh, the church has a moral responsibility to make sure society at large is better, right? We are a part of society. Um, uh, to me, voting rights is ensuring that all individuals have ample opportunity to cast a ballot and choose electors to represent their interests. We regrettably, with the, with the fights for redistricting that are going on in various states, uh, Alabama, North Carolina, among others, uh, regrettably, we are in a space now where rather than voters choosing their representatives, you have representatives who are illegally attempting to choose their voters in the interest of partisanship and in the interest of holding on to their seats for their own individual political gain. Um, we, we, our country has a very troubled history with respect to voting rights and why the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was so incredibly necessary. It, it came about, of course, because of ministerial leadership, going back to the comments I made about prophetic leadership, as I think about the late John Lewis now, uh, uh, the Voting Rights Act that's before Congress that, that has passed at least one house uh, uh, that will not pass another one because of the filibuster, um, uh, but that, that legislation bears his name. It's a tribute to his life and his conviction as a minister and leading other ministers in the in what was what we know now as Bloody Sunday, March the 7th, 1965, in a march across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where he literally had his skull cracked and had to go to the hospital afterwards, along with several others. Uh, the images have been shown on, on TV and through media for years and years. And it is a chilling reminder of where America was. Regrettably, we are attempting in a less physically violent way, but I would argue in a spiritually violent way to take America back to that where we frown upon full citizen participation. Um, the Voting Rights Act has been, has been really gutted. Uh, it, is, it was passed back then as watchdog legislation. It's still on the book, so it exists nominally, but it's now a dog uh, uh, with no bite. Uh, it has bark, but very little bite. Uh, because of the Shelby County v. Holder decision from, from uh, Shelby County, Alabama from 2013. Uh, uh, you now are a, you meaning state legislatures, uh, uh, now do not have the restrictions that once existed with respect to uh, uh, changes in voting places or procedures. Uh, uh, the, the, the tests that once had to be met uh, are no longer an issue. Uh, so we are seeing folks that have some of the same reticent views regarding equality and regarding full citizen participation. They have been emboldened 
uh, uh, the narrative of, of Make America Great Again brought out more hate crimes and more animosity in four years than we had seen in the previous 40 years in America. Um, uh, and now those people are holding office. Those people are sitting, uh, uh, reapportioning districts and, 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 and redrawing district lines. And they obviously have, uh, in many cases, a partisan agenda, but in more cases, they have racial animus. They have certain, uh, uh, um, they're, they're wedded to certain beliefs regarding equality and inequality, if I can say it that way. So voting rights is in trouble right now across the United States. And the church should exercise its moral compass, or should follow its moral compass to speak out in advocacy for all people having a right to participate as citizens in the voting process. Right. And so, you know, I'm really glad we touched on that too, because I think that's such an important part of the conversation that's so often, unfortunately, left out for fear of venturing into partisanship. And I, I really want to encourage my friends that are in ministry leadership positions, and I don't mean just pastors, I mean the the folks that set up the potlucks, I mean the folks that you know, that do the Brunswick stew here in North Carolina. You're, you're Methodist. You get it. You know, yeah, the Brunswick. <laughs> and I want, I want to talk about those, you know, like encourage people to, to vote and get active to write and call their representatives. It's, it's not about partisanship. It's about democracy, which is a different topic altogether. And, um, and in some ways antithetical to this partisan, non-conversational, non-dialogical model that we have fallen into that's just, I think, so dangerous and unhealthy. Um, Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I my, could not agree more. My soapbox on this has my feet print, feet, footprint so deeply embedded in it at this point. But um, back to you, you have a new book coming out. Tell us about that and tell us about your work with Duke CFR. I'm going to give, as a member of the Brian cohort, I'm going to give Valerie and Nina and Edgardo and all the CFR staff a shout out for all the awesome work they do. If you don't know Duke Center for Reconciliation, follow them on social media, check them out, read some books they've put out. They are wonderful people and it is truly my honor to work with them. Um, during the course of my studies at Duke Divinity School, I was very, very much immersed in, in, in biblical equality and breaking down systems of injustice. So, so addressing social justice, if you will. When you think about systemic oppression, uh, it's easy to think about uh, uh, our Jewish brothers and sisters, the Israelites who were oppressed during periods that included uh, the Babylonian exile, prior to that, including enslavement in Egypt. And it's easy to obviously think about the systems that oppress them. Uh, Christ came as a liberator. Christ came to, to equalize and, and level the playing field. So again, to quote the Acts 10, 34 narrative, all means all, God is no respecter of persons. At the same time, when I was studying at Duke, um, I recognized that the country was changing. There was a there was a, a, a demographic of America that I thought was was long gone because of the the eight years of President Barack Obama, uh, but that demographic was lying in wait for someone to light a fire, as the expression goes, to gas lantern, right? And and that person came with the with the narrative of make America great again, and we and we went in a very retroactive way, in a very regressive way, uh, to which I had to respond. And I responded in an intellectual fashion, I'd like to think, uh, by blending theology and law, the disciplines that I am most familiar with in the public witness, in writing called to reconciliation, how the church can model justice, diversity, and inclusion. It is 
I'm biased, but I'll say it's a wonderful read, right? I'm biased, right? But don't just take my word for it. If you if you look, if you Google the book, or if you Google my name and the book comes up, you will see, and you mentioned Eduardo at the at the, the Dean of the Divinity School, but the director of the Center for Reconciliation, he is one of those that shared a wonderful warm endorsement for it. Uh, as we think about prophetic leadership in this day and age, probably the, the foremost prophetic leader now is, is William Barber, uh, the Reverend Dr. William Barber. He shared a wonderful endorsement um, uh, Bill Leonard, the former dean of Wake Forest Divinity School, among others, Barbara Williams Skinner. Uh, there are a host of people who have who have supported this work, and I'm so 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 proud of what they have have put forth. I'm so proud of the words that they have shared in support of my work. But it is a uh, it's a very good read. I'd like to think it connects, as you would imagine, given given what you've seen of me in the last half hour. I suppose it connects the disciplines of law and theology. Uh, for public change. It, 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 it highlights Peter's leadership and Paul's theology. Paul, who wrote uh, uh, the, uh, the authentic epistles, really spoke to a culture of egalitarianism. Uh, when you think about Galatians, the third chapter, Paul, about circumcision, Paul really speaks to uh, uh, here in the church. No, all that other stuff is outside, but in the church, our culture is there's no longer male or female slave or free, but we all are one, meaning we all are equals in Christ Jesus. So I argue that that culture of equality that was so apparent in Paul's writings and the things Paul argued for, that culture of equality must be must be uh, resurrected, if you will, in the, in the secular society, and the church should be the exemplar in doing that. The, the book speaks to three types of reconciliation. It speaks to salvific reconciliation, which we have addressed with respect to the vertical plane of the cross, right? We are reconciled in our relationships with God through Jesus. It speaks to social reconciliation, which would mirror the horizontal plane of the cross, that we are reconciled to one another as equals because of Jesus. But it also speaks to prophetic justice and civil reconciliation. And, and, and if all means all, again, uh, ministers were the right ones to lead the civil rights movement because they led it with the biblical principles of saying society should conform. Society, if you put on paper these things, the Constitution says we're all equal. We are going to speak truth to institutions of power to make sure equality is effectuated. So that's what I call civil reconciliation. So uh, a call to reconciliation, how the church can model justice, diversity, and inclusion. Again, I think it's a good read, and I hope our listeners will pick it up. Yeah, I love the model that you, I, I hope they will as well. It will be in the show notes, a link to where you can order that book um, and support Dr. Augustine's work through that. Um, I love the the framework you've brought about in this like threefold model of reconciliation. It It's very, to me, to get a little nerdy here, if y'all will forgive me, listeners. You um, can't help yourself, can you? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I can't. It's It just comes out. Daniel Castillo has a book in Ecological Theology of Liberation, and um, he makes this same, this really interesting, like, dichotomy that's, you know, we often think of, like, things in their own little silos, right? Like, we think of things as being their own, like, especially when it comes to ecology, it's its own thing, but Castillo makes this argument that it's really a threefold thing that are different but inseparable in that we love God, we love neighbor, and we love creation is all one act that's the same substance. It just takes different forms. It's this Trinitarian act. And it seems to me like that's part of what you're describing is this three-form substance or this same substance in three forms. 
And we, we really, I mean, so yes, we, we all are together. We all are joined together in various ways and in different ways, right? Um, the book ultimately makes the argument that the church should be able to lead and be an exemplar for the secular world uh, because our theology says that all means all and we all are equal. And it also says that we can, we can learn so much from secular world best practices about diversity and inclusion. And one of them I highlight is the institution of affirmative action, uh, which obviously now our Supreme Court has said we're going to take a look at regarding the Harvard case and, uh, and the University of North Carolina. Um, um, affirmative action is an attempt, I believe, at reconciliation. It's an attempt to create community and to, pe and to put people who otherwise might not be in community with one another in community with one another so they can learn from one another. Uh, there, is a, there is a such thing I write about as cognitive diversity. There's another thing I write about as identity diversity, and both are important to help solve social problems, but both are also important for human edification. Cognitive diversity says that the lawyer thinks differently than the linguist. The linguist thinks differently from the accountant, but when you put the three of them together at a table, they can not only learn from one another, but they can solve social problems much more quickly than if it was an otherwise homogeneous group. Uh, when you think about identity diversity, it says that a black man, a white man, a gay woman, a Mexican-American woman, what have you, when they come together with those, or a, a Methodist man, a Baptist man, what have you, whatever self-identification we have, you learn more from each other than you would in a homogeneous space, and you're much more apt to solve social problems in a, in a quicker fashion, I should say, than if it was a homogeneous group. So, um, so again, that is, that is really the basis of what affirmative action in a very imperfect sense, but that's really what it attempts to do. So it's a form, I would argue, of civil reconciliation. It's an attempt to bring people together and no different than what God was doing when God brought Peter as a Jew and Cornelius as the Gentile together in the Acts 10 narrative when Peter had to come to Jesus session, aha, I now realize God is no respecter of persons. He would not have made that realization, would not have come to that realization had he not been put in community with Cornelius. Right. And my, I have a good friend, Pierce Godwin, who, um, who we need to have on the podcast at some point. Man, he, he's with this organization. He started it called Listen First, and it's um, a way to try to encourage conversations in the public sphere. And something he recognizes in a lot of his public speaking is that there is an intellectual diversity, as he calls it that's so important in a room. And that intellectual diversity, it doesn't just come from we have different ideas. The ideas we have are embodied ideas that we carry from who we are, that is deeply planted and rooted in our identities, our sense of self and self-esteem, the places that we've called home or do currently call home, and the things that we're also against. It's not just the things we're for or, or where we're from, but it's the things that we that we stand against. And oftentimes when people get in conversation, though they might be from very different backgrounds, they realize that ecumenically, diversity-wise, you know, like there's a shared commitment to truth and justice and beauty that that as a Christian, I think comes from God. That it's so good. You you know, I have a friend on, a, on another podcast that I do that said the other day, he said, you know, he's like, I read Southern literature sometimes, and I read a phrase that it is so good, I have to go share it. Mm. He's like, and that's how the gospel is, or at least it's mm. Wow, wow, understood, absolutely understood. And I agree, I agree 110%. Well, 
I always ask, and we we do have a special message, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cut it the way we normally end. I am gonna ask you to leave us with the covered dish, as we like to say here at the fellowship hall. This this piece of something to chew on or snack on through the week, and that it takes a little bit longer to digest. But before we do that, I have a special announcement. As the first couple episodes of this podcast, and they've all been amazing have really inspired me to keep going with it. And it was a sort of test case to see how this would go or if this conversation was, you know, a good, if podcasts were a good platform to have this conversation about racial equity and the church and radical friendship. And it's turned out really amazing. We have a great listenership who like committedly been encouraging and, and active and listening. Well, we are doing some rebranding work. We're going to launch some social media platforms to build more of a community around this and I hope this is okay to announce Dr. Augustine is actually going to come on as a co-host um, in this, what I'm going to call the second season, really more just of a revamp um, to help shine a light on different aspects of different peoples. And we're going to be a little more ecumenical. This launches it as an opportunity to speak into the Baptist, specifically the Cooperative Baptist and Alliance space. But in doing so, we've realized that it's not far enough and that our listenership is a lot broader and more diverse. And to really have this conversation, we need more folks on board. Dr. Augustine is an, is an AME minister. He's Methodist. I'm Cooperative Baptist. You guys that are listening are coming from all over the place. This is going to be an open space where we talk about racial reconciliation, radical friendship, and just open up the room to have more conversations about issues that need to be had in our public leadership, our public sphere, our public conversation. Wonderful. And it's an honor. It's an honor, Chris. I thank you so much for your thoughtfulness. Um, I want to, in addition to saying thank you, you you hit something on the head, the nail on the head that I wanna that I want to speak to as the covered dish here in the fellowship hall, right? Where would we be if only only Baptists listen to this podcast? Uh, uh, where would we be if, if for me as a preacher of the gospel, if I was only touching Methodists? Um, uh, where would communities be? Where would society be if everybody was just like us? We'd be probably in a pretty boring space. Um, when I think about affirmative action, when I think about reconciliation and the way I begin the book called to reconciliation, I talk about the analogy of gumbo. I'm from Louisiana. I'm a card carrying member of the Houdat Nation. Um, uh, and I love gumbo, as I would say at home, I love me some gumbo. Um, um, gumbo is a wonderful dish. It's not soup. It's not a puree. You can look at gumbo and you can easily discern there's chicken. Some people use hen. There is sausage. There are shrimp. There is okra. Those individual food items keep their individuality, but they come together complementing one another and they make something that is incredibly special. It's not the old melting pot, the analogy we used in yesteryear to talk about immigration into America, because the melting pot denotes some form of assimilation that I've got to drop this to in order to become that. Gumbo, you are authentically who you are. You bring your full self to work. You bring your full self to the fellowship hall. The dynamic I think we want, and I want you to chew on this listeners as we think about what affirmative action is. Don't think about the way people have weaponized it. Don't think about the, the arguments for this. Don't think, of, think about what it really is at its core. It's an attempt to bring people into the fellowship hall, both Baptists and Methodists, both white, both black, 
of other ethnicities is an attempt to bring people in for a gumbo-like fellowship where you maintain your individual identity, but you come together in something that is more holistic and much more special. Some people call that the church, but that is what the institution of affirmative action is really designed to do for, for the secular world. So I'd like that to be my offering uh, for, the, for the fellowship hall. That's my covered dish. Amen. That is, I'm going to have to chew on that one this week. Thank you so much. <laughs> Oof. You can tell you're a preacher, man. I'm telling you, it is. it comes through. <laughs> you can help it. Well, thank you so much for being on with us today. And I am really excited for this upcoming season of change for this podcast and to see the ways in which we'll grow. Please, if you're listening to this, share this with a friend. Follow us on the social media platforms that we have posted. And the stuff for Dr. Augustine will be listed in the show notes. All work he's doing and the upcoming book, especially please buy that book. It's a great launching off point, especially if you're willing to dive deeper into this world of racial reconciliation. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Such Thanks for tuning in today. Um, if you enjoyed this music in the intro and outro of the show, it is by a band called Elephant Funeral. The song is We Bless the Sun. Thanks for being on with us today, and we look forward to having you join us back here in the future to have more conversations that matter. For now, go in peace. Fragile, son, destined to break.